0: Yesterday, about noon, it was warm enough to go outside, so I went outside with my two youngest children, and they wanted to ride their bikes. And so as we prepared to go outside, I I tried to remind them to put on their tennis shoes, because that's important when you're riding a bike. You don't want to scuff up your feet. And then as we got to the garage, I reminded them to put on their helmets, because it's important that they protect their head. And then I thought about that I wasn't quick enough for my three-year-old to get elbow pads and knee pads on him because he's just always in danger. And my words to my children, I think, are very similar to Jesus' words to the disciples, with one slight difference that we'll get to in a little bit. But what Jesus tells the disciples is, it's dangerous out there. It's dangerous out there. The disciples knew this to be true. They knew already in the 10th chapter of Matthew, they already know that things were dangerous for Jesus. That Jesus was anti-establishment, that he was revolutionary, that those who were in charge at the time that Jesus was alive were threatened by Jesus. And the story is, you know the story, that the threat that the establishment felt ultimately led to Jesus' death. And so the disciples knew that things were dangerous for Jesus. And in this passage, verse 25, Jesus says to the disciples, if they say that I'm the devil, what are they going to say about you? Worshippers of the devil with none of the power, you better look out. It's dangerous out there. And it was dangerous for the disciples. We know um, not only from Scripture, but also mostly from stories or legends of the early church, that many of the disciples met with very violent and untimely deaths. In fact, there was one account that I came across this week that said that all of the disciples but one, John the Beloved, met a martyr's death. And so the disciples and uh, many of the followers, many of Jesus' followers in those early years, it was a very dangerous place for them. And they did meet with very violent and tragic deaths. And we know today that in many parts of the world, it is still very dangerous to be a follower of Jesus the Messiah. Just last week, last Sunday, 58 were killed in Baghdad while worshiping in a Catholic church. And the threat this week to the Christians in Egypt. Uh, And we know that people in China for many years have had to hide while they worship. And so there are still places in the world where it's physically dangerous, where there's a physical threat to those who worship Jesus the Messiah. But I wondered this week if these words would be so important and so pertinent to those people, but not important to me. Because, you see, I live in a very nice home, in a very comfortable neighborhood, and I worship here in this space that is valued by the community that surrounds it. You know, I think one job on this staff that I would not want to have is facilities manager because it's the facilities manager who decides who gets to use this space and when they get to use this space. And a few years ago, we had so many demands to use this space that the facilities manager said, okay, we need to set a new rule. If you're going to use this space, your event or your group has to be in line with the mission of this church to reach people for Jesus Christ, to nurture relationships with him, and to reach out to all the world to the glory of God. And yet, even with that guideline, even with that condition, this building is filled on most afternoons and most evenings. This is a very valuable place in the community. And yet, I know from watching people here over the last 13 years that those who really follow the Messiah, those who do the radical uh, things that Jesus calls us to do, those who give to the point of sacrifice, those who believe beyond reason, well, that's um, that's a bit looked down on by the world that surrounds us. You see, the social environment that's around us is a, is a little bit perplexed by those who really follow the Messiah, if not hostile about it. People don't like it. This stuff makes them uncomfortable. You know, I can tell you that in this Bible... Are words that the depth has yet to be measured over thousands of years. That this is a really deep work, and yet chances are that this afternoon or tonight you could turn on the television or turn on the radio, and there would be a scholar with um, a degree much weightier than mine who would tell you uh, that the words in this this book are of no use to us; that they're outdated. And so I believe that Jesus' words to the disciples are important to me and important to you, those of us who live in San Antonio, Texas, and worship here. Because when we are really practicing our faith and following the Messiah, we are a threat to what is perceived to be intelligent and acceptable. So some advice for our journey. Jesus tells his disciples, gives his disciples several pieces of advice. And the first starts in verse 16, when Jesus' advice is, um, so be wise as serpents and as innocent or as harmless as doves. I was listening not too long ago to a group of elementary school students, and there was one little boy in the group who was talking about his pets at home. And he has two boa constrictors. And so he was telling a story to his friends about his pet boa constrictors. And he said, you know, sometimes when I walk into the room where I keep the snakes and and I look in the aquarium, it's like they're not there. And so I get startled and I start looking around the room for the boas. And then their little heads will pop out from beneath the sand and the grass in the aquarium. And they smile at me. And... I don't know if this is true, and I sure don't want to test the theory out, but the little boy really believed that his snakes were trying to pull one over on him, that they were smart enough to know how to trick him. And I know that when we look in Scripture and we look up references of uh, snakes or serpents, we can start right at the beginning with Genesis and see that people believed the snake or the serpent to be not only intelligent but pretty crafty. In the creation story, uh, the serpent, the talking serpent comes to Eve and says, you will not die if you eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, but your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And then we have the dove. The dove is a symbol of peace, a universal symbol of peace, right? The Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, the book of the Song of Solomon, which is a discussion between two lovers, the bride and the bridegroom, The bridegroom at one point in the song of Solomon says to the bride, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like dove. And then the bride later says to the groom, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth and the voice of the dove is heard in our land. Ah, the dove, an image of of beauty, of um, perfection, of peace. And yet what I know from my own experience is that periodically every year, my freezer will be packed with dove. After just one evening, one simple hunt, there's no room in my freezer because there's so much dove in the freezer. So while they may be very uh, gentle and very peaceful animals, I suspect that they also um, may not be too bright. But I don't know. Maybe my husband's just that good of a shot. That's probably what I should say. Well, N.T. Wright, who is a biblical scholar, says that this combination of the dove and the serpent is important to us as Christians because Christians typically get one right and not the other. You know, we're snakes. We're so intelligent and crafty that we're mean-spirited and manipulative, trying to control the actions of other Christians or non-Christians. I know that to be true. I've seen some Christian snakes. Or we're dove, we're so gentle that we're naive and we're not effective. Either way is ineffective. And so Jesus combines the two for his disciples and he says, balance these two. Be neither manipulative nor naive, but balance the dove and the serpent. A gentle wisdom, I suppose, is important for us as we go Along in a world that's a dangerous place. The second piece of advice that I see in this passage of Scripture for us today, the second pitfall to watch out for, wouldn't be unfamiliar to the disciples. They would have heard it before. In fact, this piece of Jesus' instruction is the command that's found most often in Scripture. Do you know what the command is that's found most often in Scripture? Let's do it like a multiple-choice test. I'll give you a few options. Is it... Behave yourself. That's what you want your children to believe, right? But that's not it. Is it say your prayers more often? No, that's not it either. Is it wise up or worship more? No, it's do not fear. Do not fear is the command that's found most often in Scripture. And Jesus gives these words of instruction Three times in these 15 verses that we looked at today. In verse 26, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will, be un- that will not be uncovered. And in verse 28, Jesus again says, do not fear. And then again in verse 31, do not be afraid. You are of more value. Verse 28, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those that can harm the body because they can't get to the soul. You see, this is where Jesus' words of caution to his disciples differ from my words of caution to my children. Because I'm so concerned with my children's physical safety. But that's not Jesus' concern for his disciples. Jesus' concern for his disciples is for their souls. There's no promise in Scripture that my physical safety is ensured or that my comfort level is important to God. Or that I will be financially prosperous. No, God is more concerned. And Jesus is more concerned for his disciples with something that's much deeper. Dallas Willard, who is a theologian and scholar, says it's not our comfort level that's important to God. But it's our character. The building of our character and the strengthening of our character that matters to God. Now, verse 28 in this passage is a bit controversial Verse 28 says this in my version, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And here's the controversy among scholars. The controversy is the him in this passage, the H-I-M. Is the H-I-M, should the H-I-M be capitalized or not? Some scholars say, yeah, this is a capital H. You need to fear God and be intimidated by God because it's God who can put your you-know-what, you-know-where, so watch out. And those words of caution may be true, but it doesn't really seem to mesh for me with the rest of this passage, and so I'm not sure I buy that. Some other scholars say that the hymn is a lowercase hymn, that the hymn is anyone or anything uh, that can contribute darkness to your soul protect your soul protect your character jesus is saying that's what's important and that's what's vulnerable to influence some versions of this particular verse don't say hell the verse the bible that i read from and the one up on the screen both say who can destroy both your soul and your body in hell but some versions instead give us an actual geographical place And that place is the Greek word gehenna. And gehenna was a place right outside of Jerusalem that was the trash dump, a smoldering trash heap. And the Jews often referred to gehenna when they were talking about a spiritual place, a spiritual hell. But it's interesting to me to think, especially here, when Jesus uses the word gehenna to talk to his disciples, that he might be saying, watch out for the trash. Don't let the trash attach itself to you, to your character, because you will find yourself in a smoldering trash heap in Gehenna. On Monday of this last week, an 18-month-old in Paris fell from seven stories up from his mother's apartment, and a little boy on the street saw him fall and he nudged his father and as the toddler fell seven stories he landed first on a canopy above a cafe and then he landed in the arms of the father this is what it's like to be a disciple we fall we certainly have bumps and bruises, and yet the promise is to the disciples that they will land, that we will land safely in our Father's arms. Will you pray with me? Eternal and loving Father, we thank you and we praise you this day that it is your will to protect that is that is most significant about us and to create... Uh, a pure uh, character within us. Lord, we thank you that you are creator God, always creating around us, but creating within us as well. We thank you and praise you. We thank you and praise you also this day that you sent your son to be our Lord and Savior, that he taught, that he healed, that he ate with sinners. Lord, on this day, we are grateful. We remember that on the night before he gave himself up for us, our Lord and Savior took bread, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that when the supper was over, he took, took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood, the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, Almighty God, we ask this day that you would send your Holy Spirit upon this bread and this cup. Make them be the blood and the body of Christ and send your Holy Spirit upon us as well, that we may be the body of Christ redeemed by your blood. Lord, make us one with Christ, one with each other. And one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in his final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But those who are assisting with communion, please come forward, and, and our prayer ministers as well. This morning, when you come forward to take communion, you'll be taking communion by intinction, which means that you'll take a piece of the bread and then dip it into the cup before placing it in your mouth. And you should also know that it's the tradition of this church that all are welcomed at the communion table. You don't have to be a member of this church to celebrate communion. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, believed that this was our chance to encounter the living Lord, the risen Christ, and so all are invited. Uh, We have communion servers up here, but we also have prayer ministers here as well who will um, anoint you and pray over you if you would like. The table is set. Our hearts are prepared once you come and celebrate this holy sacrament.